0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
1: It all began with an animated mouse whistling as he swung his hips at the helm of a paddle steamer. Steamboat Willie, an eight-minute-long clip released in 1928, was the first time the public met Mickey Mouse, the big-eared cartoon rodent that became the face of the Walt Disney Company. Six years later, Walt Disney himself risked his house to fund his first animated feature film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs.
2: Magic milk on the wall, who is
3: the fairest one of all?
1: After that, it was on to live-action with films like Mary Poppins.
3: Right. It's super color, even
1: now Disney, which turns 100 years old on Friday, is worth $180 billion. Not only does it own Marvel...
4: I am Iron Man. The suit and I are one.
1: Lucasfilm.
4: The
2: Force. It's calling
1: to you. And 21st Century Fox. It also owns television broadcaster ABC and US sports network ESPN, as well as theme parks, stores and even a cruise line. But as households swap cable packages for streaming services and kids immerse themselves in gaming rather than movies, can the world's biggest entertainment firm reinvent itself for its second century? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin.
3: In Washington DC,
1: I'm Alice Forwood. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show,
5: the future of Disney.
3: First, we'll explore the sprawling kingdom that is Disney today.
5: It's a huge company, you know, it's not just Mickey Mouse anymore. Then we'll hear more about the perils of the streaming business.
4: The legacy media companies, and I put Disney as the leader of that pack, basically woke up one morning and went, crap, everything is changing. We've got to shift to streaming. And finally,
1: we'll consider what the next act might be for the world's biggest entertainment company.
2: Gaming revenues will exceed about $200 billion this year. There's roughly 140 million people born every year, and nearly all of them become gamers by the age of 10. Alice,
1: Mike, hello.
3: Hi Tom, how are you doing?
1: Hey Tom, great to have you back. Thanks. And it's great to be back because we're here to talk about Disney. And Disney is one of these companies that's great to discuss because for so many of us, it was such an important part of our lives growing up. I, for one, have always been a big fan of The Lion King and Aladdin. But what about you both? What are your favourite Disney films?
3: I mean, all of the all of the big ones, of course. I also harbor a soft spot for some niche picks like Robin Hood and The Sword in the Stone. Anything does not Fantasia, basically.
6: I still harbour some sort of fairly deep-seated trauma from watching Pinocchio as a child, particularly the bits where he's eaten by a whale and the bit where that guy threatens to murder him with an axe. And I think they really made them differently in the 40s. I understand that films have become a bit more child-friendly over time. They're a little bit more sanitized these days.
1: Well, I don't know if you saw this, but Disney actually racked up an impressive 22 Oscar nominations on Tuesday. So they're clearly doing something right. But unfortunately, that hasn't quite translated into investor enthusiasm. Its share price is down by almost a third from last year's high.
3: Those uh, investors aren't excited by the prospect of winning an Oscar then?
1: Well, I think maybe many of them are worried about Disney's ability to continue funding those award winners in the future. and That's because between 2018 and 2022, Disney's free cash flow actually fell by a whopping 89%. Now, much of that comes down to Disney's troubles adapting to the changing way that people watch its films and programs. To understand more about that, I want to bring in The Economist's in-house Disney expert, Tom Wainwright. Tom, hi. Thank you for joining us today.
5: No problem. Good to be here.
1: Tom, I suspect a lot of people hear the name Disney and immediately think back to one of the films they saw as a kid or a visit to, to one of Disney's parks. But it's really a sprawling kingdom. I wonder if you could just... Take a moment to walk us around the business of Disney.
5: Yeah, sure, you're right. It's a very big operation these days. I was at Disneyland just recently reporting the story that we ran and walking around the park, you really get a sense of the company's history and the sheer kind of reach of everything it does these days. You walk in and pretty soon after going in, you pass a little cinema where they're showing old films, including Steamboat Willie, which was the first ever Mickey Mouse movie. You go on a bit further and you see the Sleeping Beauty Castle, which... Kind of reminds you of the old films of the 1940s and 50s, those classic animations that everybody knows. And then you keep walking and you see new areas and they've got the big Star Wars area and they've got a Marvel area and a Pixar area now as well. And these properties that Disney acquired more recently, they went on a big acquisition spree at the beginning of the 21st century and bought Lucasfilm for Star Wars, Marvel. They bought 21st Century Fox, which gave them a load of new properties, which are mostly now in uh, the Hulu streaming service. So they've got all this stuff, and on top of this is stuff that isn't even in the park. They've got the ESPN Sports Network. They've got ABC Broadcasting. So it's a huge company. You know, it's not just Mickey Mouse anymore by any means. It's
1: fascinating. And, you know, one of the really interesting things about Disney is it's now this mixture of older legacy business like the parks, but also its traditional broadcasting and cable TV business, as well as everything it's built around direct-to-consumer streaming more recently with Disney Plus and its investment in Hulu. How is it managing the transition from these older businesses to its newer ones?
5: Well, it's in a difficult spot and it's not alone in this in media. Lots of other legacy media companies are in the same position where they've got these old Very profitable, but declining businesses in cable television, which are still the biggest source of Disney's profits, but smaller and smaller every year. And what Disney's doing, you know, as this cable mothership goes down, it's trying to launch a streaming lifeboat, if you like, and it just desperately has to get that lifeboat out there and profitable before the mothership sinks altogether. And the difficulty is that Disney Plus has been a big success in terms of the number of subscribers it's got. You know, it really only launched a a few years ago. And if you add together subscribers to Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, which is its sports streamer, and Hulu, then altogether that's more subscriptions even than Netflix has. So it's been a big success in that sense, but it's not been a big success when it comes to actually making money. It's losing about a billion dollars a quarter at the moment. And so what Disney's scrambling to do and lots of other old Hollywood studios are having exactly the same kind of scramble is try to get this new media working and profitable, this new streaming operation before the old networks, cable and broadcast disappear altogether.
1: One thing that Disney has been in the news for in recent months is this saga at the top of the company between the two Bobs, Bob Chapek and Bob Iger. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
5: Yeah, you're right. It's the battle of the Bobs. Uh, Bob Iger was Disney's CEO for 15 years, very, very successfully until he stepped down in 2020 as chief executive, was replaced by another Bob, Bob Chapek, who he had really chosen himself. But Bob Chapek had a a tough time. I mean, it wasn't all his fault. The pandemic was not something anybody could have predicted. But investors really lost confidence in him in the end. Disney Plus was struggling to be profitable. People thought Chapek just didn't really quite have the plan needed to get that together. And he made various political missteps as well. He annoyed actors and actresses with some of their straight-to-streaming deals. Um, He didn't have the surest touch when it came to dealing with the Republican Party in Florida, where, of course, Disney's got Disney World, enormous business there. And towards the end of last year, it came to a head, and after Disney had a particularly ropey set of quarterly results, he got fired by the board. And the big surprise was not only that they fired him, but they brought back the previous Bob. So Bob Iger is now back in the hot seat as chief executive. He's been given two years to try and turn things around. And so he's got to get things back on track at Disney and find a new successor, which was his biggest mistake last time, really. Failed to pick the right successor, and people now wonder if this time he can make a more successful choice.
1: And the original but recently reappointed Bob, he hasn't been in the job for all that long, but has already encountered a significant Challenge in the face of an activist investor in recent weeks. Can you tell us about that as
5: well? Yeah, that's right. It was a bit of a shock because he came back, and for a while he was absolutely glowing because Bob Chapek had not been terribly popular either with investors or, or Disney staff. And Bob Iger was this kind of beloved figure who had led Disney through a very successful period. And so he came back and was basking in everybody's approval. And then along came this guy Nelson Peltz from Try and Partners, a, a big activist investor, saying it's all rubbish and needs a shakeup and. He's now lobbying for a seat on Disney's board. Disney said no way. But uh, Triumph Partners and and Nelson Peltz are putting out these arguments very publicly, criticising Disney um, for really not running the business as well as it should have done in in recent years. And uh, their criticisms are kind of fairly broad. It seems that their main beef is that although revenues have been healthy, profits have not. They accuse Bob Iger of overpaying for the 21st Century Fox acquisition during his previous stint as chief executive. And they think that Disney's losing too much money on streaming. I mean, some of this is reasonable, but I think it's a little unspecific. And Disney, I think, is is right when they point out that Nelson Peltz doesn't have very extensive experience in media. So they're trying to play this down. But it's another headache that Bob Iger doesn't really need when he's already dealing with fairly serious problems at Disney.
1: All right. Well, to hear a bit more about the challenges that Bob Iger is facing, I want to bring in Rich Greenfield, who's been watching Disney for decades now, and he's an analyst at Lightshed Partners. Shall we hear from him now, Tom? Sounds good. Rich, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: So Disney has really been losing money hand over fist in in streaming. And it's predicted to break even in 2025. But even then, I think it's only going to have an operating margin of less than 3%. And Netflix, by comparison, their operating margin is something like 18%. And that seems particularly surprising to me, given the advantage that I think Disney has here with all the iconic franchises it can leverage to generate content. So why is Disney struggling to make money in the streaming business?
4: Streaming is a business that took Netflix a long time, over a decade, to build this level of success and understanding. I mean, contrast that with the legacy media companies, and I put Disney as the leader of that pack, who basically woke up one morning and went, crap, everything is changing. We've got to shift to streaming. Like, we've waited a decade. We've watched Netflix. We've got to make this move. We've got to make it quickly. And so you move very, very quickly to jump into streaming. It is not your core expertise. Think about companies like Disney. They've never been direct to consumer companies. You went to a movie theater. You didn't buy a ticket from Disney. You bought a ticket from AMC or if you were overseas, Cineworld or Regal Cinemas, wherever you were around the world. You didn't buy a Disney ticket. You bought a ticket from a movie theater. They always were selling to intermediaries that touched the consumer. So shifting from being effectively a wholesaler to a retailer is an entirely different model. Disney didn't have to worry about whether you canceled the service. They never even thought about you. All they did was distribute to people who then packaged and sold to the consumer So learning the skill of how to actually run a direct-to-consumer business is an entirely new skill, something they have no historical expertise in, and I'll tell you, is really, really hard.
1: I'm a subscriber to Disney Plus, and one thing that I'm struck by is just how much content the business is churning out from franchises like Marvel and Star Wars. Do you think Disney is at risk of wearing out its IP?
4: You know – It's a great question, Tom, and it's one that I've struggled with a lot thinking about because what Disney has historically been known for has been quality over quantity. They've never been the largest producer of content. It was always about getting it right. And if you think back to when John Lasseter was at Pixar, do you know the one thing he hated making more than anything else? He hated making sequels. And sort of begrudgingly, I think they made Toy Story 2. But if you think about the history of Pixar, it was never about making sequel after sequel. It was about making great original IP. And if you think about what Disney's strategy was for Disney+, Plus, it was, hey, we have all of this great Pixar, Marvel, Lucas content. How can we start franchising it? And really blowing it out. And so now there's multiple Marvel series and multiple Star Wars series. And and the question becomes, is that what Disney's really good at? And is the streaming service too narrow? Because it puts too much pressure on these franchises. And it's just really hard to consistently fit into those silos of content and keep making it great time and time again. It's just a lot of pressure on the creatives within those categories. And so does Disney risk tarnishing these franchises or weakening these franchises by not making them feel as special as they have in the past? And I think, look, as Iger comes back for round two, I think that's one of the big things he's got to think long and hard about is, is this pace of content just too fast?
1: So Disney's streaming business consists of both Disney Plus, but also Hulu, which is a joint venture with Comcast. So you've argued that Disney should consider acquiring the stake that it doesn't own at the moment in Hulu. Why do you think that's the right strategy for Disney?
4: I think Disney has to make a more important decision first before they decide on whether they want to buy in the rest of Hulu. And that decision is, are they chasing Netflix? Meaning, do they want to be all forms of content. Because if you simply want to go back to your last question, Tom, if they really want to stick to this Marvel, Lucasfilm, Pixar, Disney animation, if that's all Disney wants to be, then they don't need to have Hulu. If you don't want to be in that more adult, mature content business, you shouldn't buy Hulu. But it does appear that Disney wants to have a broader service. Speaking to the fact that It puts too much pressure on these core franchises. They need to broaden out Disney Plus to have something for everyone in the household. I think time is of the essence. And if if they've made the decision internally that this is content they want and Hulu is important, I would buy it even if they have to overpay for it and move on.
1: Rich, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Thank you. So, Alice, Mike, it sounds like Disney's in a bit of a pickle here. It's still heavily reliant on those profits that it generates from its legacy businesses, the ones in decline like cable and broadcast TV, and it's managing to grow in streaming, which is really the future of how it's going to distribute its content, but it's having a lot of difficulty turning that into a profitable business.
3: Yeah, I thought the point that Rich made about how Disney hadn't really had to worry about end consumers before was so fascinating. I'd not really thought about it like that before. Obviously, they had their finger on the pulse of what people wanted to watch, but actually delivering that themselves and making that delivery system into a a profitable business is much easier said than done.
6: Yeah, and it's much easier (laughs) when you don't have Netflix, Apple, Amazon as well snapping at your heels. What's interesting about Amazon and Apple in particular is that because entertainment is only a sort of relatively small part of otherwise very profitable businesses, they can afford to use the streaming services as loss leaders that they bundle with other services like Amazon Prime, for example.
1: Now, on the topic of once mighty companies that have fallen on hard times. Alice, I know you have a big piece in this week's paper on Goldman Sachs, which I'm very much looking forward to reading. And I know we'll be discussing on the the show next week as well.
3: Yeah, it's funny, perhaps because I'm so deep in that story, I'm seeing it everywhere. But there are some interesting parallels between Disney and Goldman. So in comparison with Goldman's rival, Morgan Stanley, which started adapting to this post-financial crisis world, basically from 2009, Goldman woke up one morning in 2016, and it also went, oh, crap, we need to adapt. It used to just do quality, you're doing CEOs and IPOs, and it tried quantity by doing banking for the masses, which uh, didn't go that well. Anyway, listeners have probably seen or read or heard the wall-to-wall coverage of the layoffs, the bonuses getting cut, the poor fourth-quarter earnings. But we take a step back and look at the sweep of how Goldman has changed post-crisis and why it has ended up in a difficult spot now. I hope you read it.
6: I can't be the only one that hears that comparison between Disney and Goldman and feels a sort of deep horror at the idea of a Goldman Sachs resort world Orlando, Florida. Um, (laughs) This week, I am looking forward very much to our free exchange column. I won't ruin too much of it, but it's on the nature of inflation and where it comes from. If you've ever tried to wrap your head around that subject or open an economics textbook, it's one for you for sure.
1: Well, that sounds like a nice meaty read. If you'd like to read either of those pieces and many more, you'll need to be a subscriber to The Economist.
3: Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes to this episode.
1: After the break, we'll hear from the former head of strategy of Amazon Studios, one of Disney's rivals, on what Bob Iger needs to do if he wants his firm to remain a household name for the next century.
2: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
1: Before the break, we heard about the challenges facing Disney and its newly reappointed CEO, Bob Iger. To talk about how the firm needs to reposition itself to retain its crown as the world's biggest entertainment company, I spoke to the man who used to be in charge of strategy for one of Disney's biggest competitors, Amazon Studios. His name is Matthew Ball, and he's now CEO of angel investment firm Apilion. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. My pleasure. Good to see you. We've heard how streaming is being used by Disney to generate value out of its content and its IP. Another potential channel is video games. It's not an area the company has prioritized in the past, but do you think this could be a major opportunity for Disney in the years ahead?
2: Certainly, when we take a look at the economics and the growth, we can see that it's a large opportunity. Gaming revenues will exceed about $200 this year. There's roughly 140 million people born every year, and nearly all of them become gamers by the age of 10. And certainly, an immersive environment is one in which you can forge and foster a different relationship with your fan, arguably one that's more intimate. It's also worth noting that Fortnite, which has generated more revenue in several years than any other game in history at their peak, we know that their top two highest grossing seasons were the seasons focused on Marvel and the season focused on Star Wars. We can see that Disney's franchises are thriving in video games, even via licensing. And yet there are challenges. It's the publisher who retains almost all of the revenue and profits from those titles' successes. It's the publisher who maintains the customer relationship. It's the publisher whose platforms are primarily stealing time from the video ecosystem. And it's the platform that's capturing the data and the learnings that Disney might otherwise use to build up their own capabilities. The challenge becomes... What Disney can do. They haven't really ignored the opportunity, but they've typically been observed to have bought second or third string studios. Not leaders as they've historically done with Marvel or Pixar. The results have been lackluster, and they do seem to have created some cultural PTSD. Bob Iger has talked in the past about they're not ignorant to the opportunity in gaming, and they understand its criticality. They've just tried before and they've failed and they regret having to lay people off. So you mentioned that Disney has not really
1: taken big swings in the gaming space in the way it has with studios like Pixar and the Marvel franchise and Star Wars. If Disney were to make a big acquisition in this space, who are some of the potential targets you think they might go after?
2: It's actually hard to answer the question, what would a Hollywood studio buy? There aren't many options, and all of them have their challenges. Roblox is particularly popular with children, about 60 million daily active users, a good potential fit with Disney. And yet Roblox makes no content themselves, which means they couldn't directly build around any of Disney's intellectual property. Disney would have to continue licensing it elsewhere. You take a look at a company like Electronic Arts, a substantial portion of their business is in licensing FIFA, for example, and the company is worth 30 or $40 billion. It would more than double Disney's already rough debt load. When you get to the cheaper acquisition targets, such as a Take-Two, we start to see potential fit. They're great at narrative. They have a huge library of titles, many of which are great fits for capabilities or adaptation for Disney. But most of the company is based around a single title, and that title is Grand Theft Auto, unlikely to be a brand fit for Disney. And so as you start going down the roster, most isolate on a company called Square Enix. Square Enix makes Final Fantasy, the title that would be most famous to Westerners. But they've also had about 30 years partnering with Disney. And yet that themselves has a a challenge, which is it's a Japanese publisher with its own very specific culture, which will make it hard for any company outside of the region to acquire it, but in particular one with no video game expertise. And so this is the conundrum. So one of the challenges with
1: a big acquisition for Disney would be it's already substantial debt load between 2018 and 2022, its debt to profits ratio increased from about 0.9 times to 2.7 times. And three is kind of the upper limit that most pundits use when they're looking at you know, whether a company is too highly leveraged. So I suppose what that implies is that if Disney were to make another substantial acquisition, they'd have to consider potentially selling off something that they currently have in their portfolio. So as you think about Disney's business today, what do you think some of the options might be for things that they could
2: shave off? The two most common answers to this question are ABC, their broadcast network, and ESPN. When you take a look at these two options, they have their merits and demerits. Broadcast remains a very popular channel for producing content, popularizing content, and it does offset some of the costs for the titles that then end up on Disney+. Plus. It's a recoupment platform. More recently, we've actually seen that Disney has been harvesting content from ABC, Dancing with the Stars. Despite 35 seasons of success on ABC, Disney yanked it off of ABC, and it's now a Disney Plus exclusive. So we can understand some strategic deprioritization, even if there are remnant benefits. Of course, the value of that transaction is unlikely to finance any gaming acquisition. It would help with the debt load, certainly, but it wouldn't get much more. And that really leaves the ESPN question. Most of Disney's streaming business today is international. Almost all of their subscriber growth comes outside of the United States. And in most of those territories, Disney Plus or Disney Plus with Star has no sports content, and certainly it's not purchased for sports content. And so in some regard, the globalization of Disney as a direct-to-consumer brand is marginalizing the relevance and focus on ESPN, which does raise the question of keeping
1: it. So Bob Iger has said he'll be in the job for just two years. As you think about that period, what do you think some of the big strategic options are that he has to play with?
2: The other big question is just how will Disney Plus change in the years to come? When Disney Plus was first announced, many believe that the future for this platform was to be more than just video. It would become the direct-to-consumer platform for purchasing a vacation, for purchasing merchandise. Very little of this has happened so far. In fact, there are reports that Disney is hardly, if ever, using the data and intelligence from Disney Plus to market its other products to those consumers. In fact, Disney hasn't even fully united its direct-to-consumer platforms. In the United States, there's a comic book subscription called Disney Unlimited, which is both a standalone purchase and fully separate from Disney Plus. There were reports that Bob Chapek was looking to start changing this, to start using Disney Plus as the sales channel for the theme parks to start cutting out travel agents as an example, or using his understanding of how much I love Captain America or Iron Man or how many times my child has watched cars to tailor both pricing and pitch for those parks. And so there is a question that as Wall Street focuses on the quote-unquote streaming wars and streaming losses, how do we see the streaming product become a corporate one?
1: Matt, thank you so much for spending time with us here on Money Talks. Thank you. I'm back with The Economist's Tom Wayne right now. Tom, thanks for sticking around. No problem. Tom, Disney has made a big bet on streaming, and it's understandable given the competitive situation, but it does seem to be struggling to turn that into something profitable and sustainable. What do you think they need to do from here with that business?
5: Well, I think they've kind of succeeded in step one, get a load of people to sign up. They've done that. But step two now is, is turn it into a business that actually makes money. And they're beginning to do some changes there towards achieving that. I mean, just recently, they've raised the price of Disney+. Plus. They've introduced a advertising tier, uh, which w- was a new thing, which they didn't have before. And so they're raising a bit more money from their subscribers that way. At the same time, it seems that they may be prepared to rein in their content spending a bit. Until now, Disney, like all the streamers, has, has just been blowing the budget every year on more and more and more and more content. And there's a feeling now across Hollywood that it's time to just kind of calm things down a bit. And I suspect Disney will probably be part of that trend. So... Increasing its prices, reducing its content spend, I think is probably something that it needs to start doing. Some other people have suggested it may benefit if it focused its output a bit more on its key franchises. I mean, it's a difficult dilemma here. I can see there's a case to be made that Disney Plus could be turned into something that just focused on the Marvel franchise, all the Star Wars stuff and all the classic Disney animations, and got rid of all the sort of general entertainment content and the sports with ESPN and just became a kind of Disney super fan service, if you like. That would be one way of doing it. But the counter argument says that actually streaming is a business that needs scale if you want to compete with Netflix, which has 200 and something million subscribers. There's a big dilemma there about what exactly Disney wants to be. Should it be a general entertainment company or, or should it be classic Disney, if you like?
1: Last time Bob Iger was in the big chair, he didn't waste time making big moves. I think he announced the the Pixar acquisition after only a few months after taking the the reins. He's only going to be around for two years this time. What do you think might be on his to-do list? We heard from Matthew earlier about some of the possible acquisitions in gaming. Do you think
5: that's a possibility? I think it's definitely a possibility. I mean, gaming is this incredible growth area at the moment. You know, it's growing a lot faster than if you look at legacy businesses like cable TV by comparison, you know, gaming is is something that I think a lot of media companies are are rushing to be part of. Um, It's something that's particularly popular among younger people. I saw a survey recently showing that young people in in a mix of rich countries now say that gaming is their favorite home entertainment hobby and, and they place TV and movies way down the list, you know, not just below gaming, but below music, below social media and so on. So I think there's a case to be made that gaming is going to be for the rest of the 21st century kind of what TV was for the 20th century, you know. And, and if you're a media company, you perhaps want to be part of that. And Disney at the moment really isn't. So I can see it getting into that. And there's obvious overlap that can be done between film studios and, and game studios. Now we've seen a, a growing number of successful imports of gaming IP into movies and TV. So I find it hard to imagine that in say five years or 10 years, Disney will still have nothing to do with gaming, which is this big growing area of the media.
1: Given the whole saga around Bob Chapek, I imagine that succession planning is also something that is pretty top of mind for Bob Iger. We talked earlier about how sprawling and really complex Disney is as a business now, and I doubt there's really anyone out there who would have experience that spans from streaming to traditional TV to theme parks and everything else that's now in their portfolio. What kind of profile do you think Disney might be looking for in its next CEO?
5: Well, it's really difficult. And I think in a way, Bob Chapek kind of proved what a difficult job it was. Poor guy. I mean, he his experience really was in the parks and he he monetized the parks incredibly effectively and seemed to do a good job there. But the other bits of the business, he wasn't very good at. So he wasn't really a creative guy. And I think that's absolutely at the heart of everything that Disney does. So whoever comes next needs to be on top of the creative side of the business. Bob Chapek wasn't that great at the politics side of the job either. And we saw this, first of all, in Florida, where He clashed with the governor of Florida over this so-called Don't Say Gay bill, which was a a law in Florida restricting the teaching of of LGBT subjects in the classroom, which resulted in in Disney losing this special status that Disney World has, which has given it an advantageous tax situation there for many decades. So there was that problem in Florida. And, And then further afield, he also the head of Disney has to deal with the Chinese Communist Party, you know, so so the politics of the job extend from the very local and domestic to the very international and highly sensitive global politics. So it's a very tough job for, for somebody to do all of this.
1: Tom, thank you so much for joining us today.
5: My pleasure. Thanks.
1: So, Mike, Alice, what do you think? Has Disney ruined the magic?
6: I should say first it's always a pleasure to hear from Tom Wainwright. I think with the economist editorial staffs only leodensians. We both hail from leeds, england's second city. sorry if i'm I'm missing anyone out there, but I think that's right on Disney specifically. The politics side of this really jumps out as a point of interest to me, because I think that's a whole story in itself for Disney and pretty much every other content creator going forward. Can you do content creation these days, particularly in the US, without taking a political side that's going to upset someone? we discussed a little bit the the location of the company in Florida and the politics there but the whole way the company deals with issues around race and gender and sexual orientation that's going to take some incredibly deft footwork to tiptoe through in the coming decades. Tom also mentioned China there. And there's the increasing question of whether you can do major films and TV and content generally that sort of translates across the Pacific and doesn't upset anyone politically and works for those two different markets. There's still this huge bifurcation in what's produced in China and what's produced in a lot of the rest of the world. They're not the only company that's going to be facing this problem at all. But I don't think that's the last we're going to hear about, the sort of geopolitical and culture war problems for Disney.
3: Uh, yeah, that does seem like a really huge issue for the company. I have to say, this episode has contained one of my favourite lines we've had from a correspondent, which is, I was at Disneyland just recently reporting this story. Um Truly an iconic line from Tom Wainwright. I clearly am in the wrong beat because I was just in a series of offices reporting my story. So maybe I'll get something more exciting one day. But the thing that stood out for me in the bigger sense is how important it is for companies to make the right acquisitions at the right times and how much of a difficult spot they can put you in if you get it wrong. A lot of Disney's problems seem to have stemmed from it having made some of the wrong acquisitions at, at some of the wrong times. And the solution seems to be to make some other acquisitions potentially now and Bob Iger's track record on that doesn't necessarily seem to be the best. So they really can be that sort of double-edged sword for a lot of companies. They seem like the solution to all your problems but they can end up exacerbating everything and putting you in a much worse spot.
1: I have to say I do feel a little bit bad for Bob Chapek partly because so much of what's happened at Disney over the past couple of years was kind of set in motion by original Bob. Bob Iger, who's back in the chair now, and partly because this just seems like the most impossibly complex job as a CEO, managing a business that spans so many different industries and it covers everything from creative work around the studios through to classic distribution and marketing through to technology with all the streaming investments. It just seems incredibly complex. And we talked about potentially moving into gaming going forward. That's just going to add an additional layer of complexity to the business. So Bob Iger and the board think about succession planning over the next couple of years. I think it's going to be really tough to find a good candidate for that job. So I think it's time for us to pivot to our stats of the week. Mike, do you want to kick us off? Yes, absolutely. I will get you going.
6: Um, It's a sort of seasonal theme for this part of the year, and the number is 2.1 billion. That is the number of domestic trips the Chinese Ministry of Transport expects to be made during the total 40-day period uh, in and around Chinese New Year, which is happening right now um i've just had my days off but it's a it's a longer break in mainland china that's obviously more than one trip per person (laughs) In China. So it's rather a lot of domestic travel, but it's still only 70% of what it was pre-pandemic. So you can see even in the government expectations, which are probably likely to be a little bit more optimistic, you can see the sort of lingering effect of uh, the fact that China is still exiting from a sort of COVID zero position. It'll be really interesting to see what that gets to next year, whether it's sort of completely back to normal or you've still got this sort of lag effect going on.
3: Speaking of things that are an unusually high number per capita, my stat of the week is 64 pieces per month, which is apparently the amount of fried chicken that is consumed per capita in Yamagata, which is the highest in Japan and seems like an impossibly large amount of fried chicken to eat. I sourced this out from the New York Times and googling how much fried chicken can people possibly eat did not give me an answer to sort of how, where this was sourced from. But that's more than two pieces a day, which just seems totally absurd.
6: I mean, do you not back yourself? I think I could do that. Don't threaten me with a good time. 64 pieces of fried chicken sounds like great.
3: Yeah, but every month. I mean, that's just, that's that's so much fried chicken.
1: My statistic this week is 1.5 billion, which is the amount of interest that Twitter needs to pay every year on the $13 billion of debt that was slapped on its Balance sheet when Elon Musk acquired the firm. And the first 300 million of that is actually falling due at the end of this month. Now that Twitter is private, it's kind of hard to get a good sense of the exact figures, but it's reported that revenue at the company is down by 40% year on year. And before it went private, it was making about $5 billion a year. So it's probably about $3 billion of sales. And they're going to have to pay $1.5 billion of interest on that every year. So this is a, a huge debt burden for the company to carry now. And I think it really does call into question how long it's going to be able to carry on with things the way they are.
6: If only Elon could monetize people saying that they're going to quit Twitter and then immediately coming crawling back,
1: then this would all be a lot easier. <laughs> and with that, all that's left to do is thank
3: Rich Greenfield and Matthew Bohr. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
6: And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth.
3: Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim.
6: Our executive producer is Marguerite
1: Howell. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist.